I struggle with the way I look. It's complicated. I remember looking in the mirror and not understanding why people were laughing at me. Because I thought I looked good. I thought I looked okay. But because people were laughing at me, I couldn't work it out. And I think that kind of um, preoccupation, this negative preoccupation that I've experienced quite a lot, has really, um, in a way, made it very hard for me to, to really see myself. first time I realised that I was black was when I was watching television and there was this black woman on the television and I remember laughing at her and making fun of her and an older girl who was also black like me came to me and said and who do you think you are? Um, that was the first time I realised that I was like the woman on the television. Um, I didn't understand fully what that meant, really. I just knew that the woman on the television and myself and Geraldine, the older girl, we, in some way, we, we were the same. And it didn't feel good. I remember many experiences when I was a child of uh, having adults make fun of me or children make fun of me, calling me nigger, um, gollywog, black tar baby. And it has happened in every every town that I've gone into in Ireland. I've experienced this type of name calling. So it's actually something that I've learned that I've lived with all of my life, this type of attention, negative attention. The kind of names that I was called were the same kind of names that were uh, used to insult people who looked like me and only people who looked like me. So I knew that certain words were to do with the colour of my skin. If you were insulted uh, because of the way you look, if your differences and you were... I was reminded in many ways that I was different, but that my difference was unacceptable and that meant that people laughed at you and made fun of you. Of course you're going to start feeling um, that you look ugly. You're going to... You, you, you want to hide. You don't want to... You don't want to be seen outside in case somebody else made fun of you. So as a child, I used to look in the mirror and wonder why. I couldn't understand why they were laughing at me because I knew I looked okay. I always knew I looked okay, but some part of me um, felt that I must be ugly, though I felt I looked okay. I must be ugly if people are making fun of you. 
and people who it weren't just children, it was adults, it was men, it was women. But it wasn't that they just made fun of you. They also looked at you with such a hostile look. The kind of looks that I, I experienced as a child were looks of hatred as well. So it wasn't just people mocking you. People were, adults were actually looking at you with such hostility that it can only be described as hate. Um, and I would just close in and withdraw and hide. I wouldn't go outside and play. Um, I was I was just uns it just felt unsafe. I felt that the that being black, being brown, meant that I wasn't like white children. Um and I felt that because of the way I was treated. I didn't, it's not that I felt excluded, I just didn't feel wanted. It wasn't so much that I didn't feel I was Irish, I just felt that I was different. I felt that um, I didn't want to be this different because being this different meant experiencing incredible pain quite a lot of the time. That's what I was with. To be Irish, that meant nothing to me in a sense. I didn't understand that, you know. I didn't feel Irish, but I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that I I was different because people kept reminding me that I was different. Eleven months old, I was sent there by the courts, I think, in Dublin. My mother, I'm told by the document that I have, says, uh, and on the document, it says that my mother financially couldn't support me or my sister Carol, and my grandfather kicked both my mother and myself and Carol out of his house, so she had nowhere to look after us. So she kept Carol and she sent me to Clifton. Uh, I was there for 16, 15 years. Um, there were about 75 of us there in the, in the school. It was called St. Joseph's School. It was a, an, um, an industrial school and it was there for 
to give us some type of training to prepare us for the outer world. The last time I came up here was, I'd say, gee, a couple of years ago. This is a kind of a little hut-type stone. There's a hole, and I used to pretend that that was my home. It's just, you can only fit about two people in there. And uh, I remember sticking my head up one day and being caught by the head nun. She just saw me, and I thought I knew I was doomed. Um, that was quite frightening. But I loved that little hidey place. It was a place where you could hide and not be seen. That's the laundry, where you used to go and do the laundry. The nuns as well. There was a woman called Mary Early. She lived here all her life, from the time that she was a child till she was, I think, 85. Um, and she worked all of those years doing the laundry for the nuns sewing and ironing the whole lot she worked so hard that's my bedroom up there that's the dormitory that I well we I would have been in that dormitory first that first one when I was young and then I was moved into this one when you got older that's my window bedroom up there Oh, it's cold. The lights are on in there. Okay, well, let's not. Let's see what happens. You never know. Does this make you nervous? It, it, well, that makes me nervous over there, looking at the comment, because um, I'm always aware that they could be looking out watching, you know? Uh, it's not... Um, this, this area here wouldn't have been the most comfortable area to be in because you could always be spotted. <laughs> um, and it's just... Let me try. Can I get in? Can I get in? Over here. So there might be... Um, Somebody in charge here. Hello. How you doing? Hello. My name is uh, Sharon Murphy. Can Hello. I? Is there? Is there somebody that I can speak with? I'm from RPE. Oh, yeah. And I was wondering. Sharon grew up here, and I was hoping she could just show me around. Would that be possible? Do you know? Yeah. yeah well, I, I'm here. So. Cold out. Uh, it was run by the Mercies, the Mercy nuns. There were two nuns in charge, and then there were about six, maybe five or six staff, um, lay people from the community that would come up um, and look after us, like cook food and help us along the way, I suppose. Clean the place. And we'd uh, have to study here for a few hours. This is also the dining room as well, the dining room area. Where we used to eat, yeah. Ah, oh, I have to say it's a bit 
not very nice being in, in the building. It's not a nice feeling at all. Do you want to leave? No, no, I'm just... Hmm. Hello, how you doing? Can I just come in here? Yeah. Okay, thanks. This, this is the press where they had suites. They'd have those suites locked in. And there'd be times when uh, they might leave the lock off by mistake. And I used to do the butter. My job was to bring in the butter and roll it and put it back into the fridge. So if anybody would notice, it would be me. And I'd never say anything. And they'd, be, they'd have bags of boxes of crisps there and I would... I would take as many as I could. <laughs> I'd put them into my knicker so that they wouldn't be seen, yeah? Okay? And then I'd have to walk very slowly because just down there, two doors down, would be the nun's office. And if she even heard me, she, my fear was that she'd say, what are you doing? And therefore she'd hear the crisps rattle, yeah? So I used to... Once I passed the office, then I was... As far as I was concerned, I was free home. I ran upstairs and I just piled them into me. It was a nice feeling. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the cooking took place. When I was very young, it was we were quite hungry. There was very, very little food. I'm told since that there was money, but it was directed in other places, like maybe too much money was used for nappies or something. In any case, we were quite hungry. And... Uh, then this nun was asked to leave, and another nun came along. We thought things would, would be better, and food got better, but um, the beatings didn't actually stop. They continued. You got bit for not being able to eat your food, not being able to spell, not being able to read, and you got tested quite a lot, so it was a regular thing. You got bet if you wet the bed. You got bet for anything that they disapproved of. Um, whether you, whether you um, were able to succeed in what it is that they wanted you to succeed in, it was really irrelevant. You just got bet if you didn't live up to their expectations. And the kind of beatings that you that we got would would be they had this hambrush. And it's a wooden it's a wooden stick, that's what it is. And they used to just they used to just belt us with this. They used to come down so heavy. Um you have to understand that these are these were adults beating like six and seven year old children. Our hands had to stand out. We had to put our hands out. And if we put our hands if we tried to protect ourselves by putting bringing our hands back in that meant that you got more beating. So you you literally learned to stand as a child and just keep your hands out and just try and not cry because you knew that if you cried, you got more beatings. And that may have been only because I couldn't have spelt the word colour or I wasn't able to eat that day. That's why you got bet. I got bet for... Um, not knowing the mysteries of the rosary, the day that the mysteries fell on. If I couldn't spell, they'd 
the headman would go in to, to the office and bring out a handbrush, a wooden handbrush, and she'd give you three on each hand, and they were really, really bad. And you'd just roar out crying, you couldn't help it. Well, there. <laughs> What's the second verse? Oh, God. I was just. See, these rooms had different, different lives, you know. There was times when it, this room would be used for babies. This was our bathroom here. I don't know why, but um, I always kind of, I liked this room here. Maybe it was because it, you could see outside, outside these windows, and just see everything kind of around you. You know, you had a chance of maybe if somebody was coming in or something, you'd see them first before they saw you. That was a, this room here is a child's, these were, this was the room for babies. So I would have been put in here when I was 11 months old. This would have been the room I would have been kept in. Um, and I have a one memory where I'm sitting up on the, on the, the pram and there's this woman called Teresa and she used to look after me and she liked me. But I remember Teresa was, I could just remember Teresa fighting or have, with another woman. I don't know how old I was. 
And all of a sudden, this older woman came and clouted me across the face. Because that's what you do if you're, you know, you take it out on somebody. That if you're angry with somebody, the chances are you'll also hurt them if you hurt someone they like, you know. And I think that's, looking back, I think that's what, that's why she hit me. Children watch now. I know what's going through their minds. I had some friends in the orphanage, and we just did things together. You know, we played soccer. We ran around and we just fought and played together. We were just friends. Um, I think it's kind of hard in one way. I think we were close in the sense that we felt that it was a, a them and us. But we didn't learn to be close because we didn't experience adults being close. Um, we fought. We were friends. We had friends. Like, I had a couple of friends, close friends. Um, there was no encouragement to have a, a family experience or have a family type of environment, really. Um, that was up to us to make the best of the situation that we found ourselves in, you know. When we got older, they partitioned off the... made them into kind of rooms so that... It was a, a dormitory when I was here, when I was a child. And then they just partitioned them off and turned them into bedrooms. And this one was mine. Do you know, not a lot has changed, really, has it? When you think of it, like, yeah. When I was... Uh, when it was a dormitory... I was sleeping over on that side, and uh, we used to, one of the nuns used to, as a joke, used to to put, up the, put on the alarm to wake us up in the morning. The fire alarm was our wake-up call. So it, it's kind of odd, really. Um, I keep waiting for them to come in with with their keys in their hands. I just it's just a feeling of dread. And I and I know I can look after myself, I'm an adult, but I still feel that sense of not really wanting to meet them, feeling really uncomfortable that they might might walk in on us, you know. Um that's how I'm feeling. So I'm kinda looking forward to getting out of the building, you know. I was six when I went to Westport and I'd go to Westport and spend holidays there, summer holidays and Christmas holidays, Easter holidays. Um, and that was that was an amazing experience in that it was so different to what I experienced in the orphanage. When I was in the foster family, I remember breaking a cup once, and I remember my foster mother just coming over to clean it up and said, don't hurt yourself. Um, 
if I ever broke a cup in the orphanage, it meant that I got bet. So there were differences. And I remember watching my foster mother pick up the glass and realise and and couldn't understand why she was okay about that. I expected that she would get very angry, and she didn't. She was concerned about me, and that was an amazing experience. It was Christmas, and I remember they talked about Santa Claus, and that made not a lot of sense to me. And I remember running down the stairs and... Everybody, there was like five younger kids and we all ran in and there was this chair with with my name on the chair and there were sweets and books and jumpers and stuff all on the chair and and I looked around and everybody else had chairs with goodies on their chairs and, and I was so amazed that all of this stuff was f- for me and that it was... Santa Claus that gave it to me, but the most amazing thing was that Santa knew my name because my name was on the chair. And I I was so amazed that the Santa Claus could know my name. The feelings were just... I had such an amazing experience, just just having such abundance. Uh, I got a red jumper and I got jeans and I got socks and I got bunty. I just remember everything. It was just amazing. I'd never had Santi before, before that time. That was my first experience of what Santi was about. RTE came into this room and they filmed children that were in bed here. This is the room that they filmed in. Um, was this your room? I was... Actually, it's interesting because uh, I was asked to leave the bed so somebody else could get into my bed so that RT could film in here. And I, I was very envious because one of the kids got my bed. And then when it was all over, I was I had to go back into the bed again, which I thought was very unfair. How old would you have been at the time? Uh, about seven, maybe. Seven. But it was very, it was lovely. It was really good fun having RTE here because they had cameras and they had... It was just men in the house as well, which was unusual, you know, to have males. Uh, the only male I would have would have been somebody I would have known in Westport, so here it was kind of unusual. And why do you think they wanted you out of your bed for this event? I don't know. I think probably because... I don't know, I always thought maybe because the other child looked nicer than me. I, 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 I didn't know why. That's what I assumed. I felt that I didn't want to stay in the orphanage. I felt that um, no matter how hard I felt I was trying to be good, to be successful, it never stopped the beatings. Never. I never... I I, I didn't always know um, why I was getting bad. And if you weren't getting bad, you were witnessing beatings quite a lot. So you, I lived in an environment pretty much that was based around fear and control. And living in that experience, for me, I feel really has affected me till this day. 
I think what I felt was, I felt that I wanted to have a family, that I, I wanted to leave the orphanage. I wanted the beatings to stop, and I used to just fantasize all the time. I would fantasize that I was leaving and that other people would be coming, like my mother or people that I had fallen in love with over the years that would, that would just come up and just take me away. I don't know if, if, if I felt lonely. I, I know that I felt unsafe and I didn't like where I was living quite a lot of the time. And I remember feeling that the safest place at times were going to bed where I would just pull the covers over my head and just feel at least they won't touch me here in the bed. This was a place where you could sleep and you were expected to be in that bed and therefore I felt, I used to feel that a little bit safer. Sometimes we had visitors come and stay and they come and spend some time with us and I'd go into a fantasy them coming to, to to take me out, you know, take me away. If that's lonely, that's that's all I know. If that's what lonely is. Sometimes mothers and fathers would come back, and take their children back, and that used to. I used to just envy that so much. I used to wish that my family would come back and take me out. And when you saw families coming back to take the kids back out. It just kind of made you feel, well, I felt that I I wasn't loved, you know. I think that kind of reinforced that message is that I wasn't really cared for. That mothers and fathers who came back for their children must really like them and take them home again because they cared. So why didn't mine? That, I suppose, yeah. I don't know if I understood what was happening to me. I just didn't like it. It was so unnecessary, really, what they did. Does it seem much smaller to you now than it did when you were small? That's what I noticed. It's tiny. It's like it was. It felt so huge when we were little, you know, and it was too, you know, because when you're small. Did you feel safe in the show? Safe? No, I didn't feel safe here. I felt safe in my bedroom, in my bed, when I used to go to bed. Um, I felt it was the one time that maybe they didn't pick on you, that they'd leave you alone, you know? So I used to love going to bed, actually. I used to put the clothes around me and um, uh, there's a door. I yeah, I want to go. Okay. Just a kid.
As a child, I was always seen as uh, people would say, Anne Murphy sing, Anne Murphy sing. So um, I think people saw me as a singer in one way. And in another way, I was seen as copying somebody else because there was an older girl, two years older than me, and she was an amazing singer and a guitar player. I used to envy her. I used to watch her every move, every time. And she used to write songs at a very young age. And uh, so I was, I used to imitate her and so therefore I was considered a copycat. Um, I remember one time this priest from, uh, he had, he was coming over from the missionaries, coming back home to Clifton for a holiday and he came to visit us and they asked, he asked who would sing and some people said, Anne Murphy will sing. So I started the song and uh, just as I started the song, I realised that I had started on a very high note and I knew by the middle of the song I wasn't going to make it. So I started to sing anyway and it was really, really high and I had to stop in the middle of the song and I could feel so... I could feel the embarrassment and this... Oh, I just wanted to die. And I remember this priest looking at me with... He had dark brown eyes... And he looked at me and he says, oh, that is just so lovely. Thank you so much. And I just went mad in love with him. It was just so lovely just to get him look at me and talk to me. It was worth it. I I was very shy. I, I didn't sing in public very much because I, I I really wasn't all that encouraged in one way to, to sing. My voice developed at the age of 23, I think. Um, I was I had joined a band, and there were two other female voices who were doing. They were doing harmony to what I was doing, and I remember just singing along with them. And one day, my voice started to just really become very powerful. It was quite. I don't know. It was an amazing experience because I hadn't, I hadn't felt that I had that kind of power in my voice at all. I had up to then felt very restricted. I didn't feel confident. Um, and then I, once my voice took off, I never turned back really. It was, I feel that there's an amazing amount of power, volume in me. Um, and I just felt that it, it just happened in its own way. I understand why it's taken time what was forbidden to feel Remained hidden in me Who was there to hold us Who couldn't trust It's my no coincidence We been lost Abandonment Um I don't know I don't know. I didn't even know that I had any affection for my mother uh, until recent, until I'd say seven years ago. I wrote a song called Mama. I had actually originally planned to write the song about the orphanage and to just express 
what was going on, what happened to me. And that was my first time of really looking back and trying to make sense of what happened. And um, <clears throat> it was interesting because the song had its own direction. And I went with it. And within 10 minutes, I had a song written about my mother. And uh, I just broke down and cried, I think, for hours. And that was the first time that I realized that I was deeply affected by the loss of not having a mother. I was sure that because I never had her, I didn't need her. But obviously there was some part of me who knew that I, I actually did still long for her. There's times when I feel actually quite a cross with her, actually, because um, I don't know why she left me here in Ireland. Not um, I was born in England, and a few months after I was born, she came to Ireland, and it just feels like she just left me here. I don't understand that because as a black child, a black person, I would have probably had a a better chance of creating some type of certainly some type of protection from racism if I had stayed in England or if she left me in England or sent me away into some orphanage in England. So I, I'm angry around that, that she just left me here. And as a black, black child... I've had to I've had to deal with that and that has been a lot that has caused a lot of pain for me unnecessary pain maybe I might have experienced as much pain in England I don't know but that's what I think Sometimes I, I, I kind of go blank because um, I feel uh, most of my life uh, in, in, in Ireland there has been a sort of a denial around racism. And when I've tried to talk to people about the damage and what happens to me, there's this silence. You see, I would, for, for many times I'd get this silent experience reaction I should say and would make me feel that it was not a subject to talk about so now when I do talk about it I'm also I, I get very tense I can get very tense and feel uncomfortable about it because I'm not used to talking about it freely you know I just feel that it's been so in a way it's so taboo in this country it's been um it's been a topic that hasn't really uh, got much attention. That when you grow up in an environment that where you're not allowed to really talk about what's happening to you, it becomes normal. Even that becomes normal. So you, I suppose, in a way, my survival was to stay silent. That was what you can call an ally, you know. One of my my coping mechanisms was to keep quiet about it because if I talked about it I didn't want to see again and again people looking at me saying that I was maybe just looking for attention or that I had a chip on my shoulder there were all of these sort of defences 
put up in front of me to deny me again and again and again what I was experiencing all the time. I suppose racism is... It's like... It's like experiencing unrelenting messages all the time telling you that you're different and that your difference is not accepted. It's it's living with that experience daily and living with that rejection daily. That is what racism is. I've been pushed and I've been spat on. I've been screamed at and shouted at to get out. People walking across the on the other side of the road, some would feel it's a-okay to scream at me and tell me to get out, you know, and to go back to where I belong. That has that happens quite a bit. I used to get money from the from priests on the street and I'd sometimes go into confessions and I'd get money in there too and I think it was because it was this kind of notion of the black baby thing yeah where priests just gave money to black babies it didn't matter where you were <laughs> Black, with type of dreadlock hair, curly hair. Is that what you want? Yes. I've been asked to describe myself before. Tell me how you look. I have black eyes. I am dark-skinned. My hair is quite long. It's like, it's curly type dreadlock hair. And I suppose that's it. 